Pray with me as we break open the word this morning. Lord, it is such a privilege to have this day of the week where we can just rest in you, cease from our work, gather together as your people, and hear from your lips your holy word, which, which butts up against us on so many fronts. And as we look at this well-familiar story to many of us, just pray that you would be glorified in us, Lord, this fall, as we seek to discover the real Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, my friends, welcome to Kickoff Sunday. And like I said, it's, it's muffled. We used to do all these great things on Kickoff Sunday, cookouts and bouncy games for the kids and, and everything. And when we moved here, we couldn't do that. So we just had a really nice coffee hour. And with the pandemic, we can't even do that. So it's a little muffled. Uh, but it is the day where we launch into a new season together at Christ Church. And as always on Kickoff Sunday, we launch a series of some kind. And the first sermon is really about who we are, what we're about, what we believe, why we believe it, and why it matters. All right? And so uh, we also have at this time our little churches, our small group systems usually launch this week. And so we'll talk about that a little later. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of John, uh, entitled Discovering the Real Jesus, who is the most influential person on the face of the earth that ever lived. Nobody nobody debates that, really. And so we're going to use Becky Pippert's book uh, throughout this week and use the questions in our little churches so that we might know him and follow him. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2, after looking at this, I think the most important verses... In all of chapter 2 are the words in verse 12, after this. Because it ties together something in John, which if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. And what that is, is unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what's called the synoptic gospels, unlike them, he places the cleansing of the temple with the wedding in Cana. In chapter 2 of John. Meaning, John is not necessarily a chronological. It's not absolute proof. And I'm not going to get into that. If you want to get into that, come Wednesday night. We'll talk about that at the end. But the point that I think is fascinating is that John is bringing, bringing together for the reader the wedding Jesus and the temple Jesus. And what we see to Dex, and if we can grasp these things, it'll rock our worlds. And what we learn here, as we learn who Jesus truly is, we learn about the authority of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the glory of Jesus. Let's dig in. First, the authority of Jesus, verses 13 through 15. The pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. The Jews as a people have been scattered all over the ancient world since 586 B.C. All right. Because of that, I mean, you had 500 years of Jews scattered all over the ancient world. So let's say we're a, fam- a cluster of Jews in Athens, Greece. Because we left on 586, because if we had stayed, we would have died when Nebuchadnezzar took over, all right? Or we would have been shipped off to Babylon like so many were. And we didn't want to do that, so we left. And so here we are in 30 AD, and we're doing what all good Jewish people do is we go back, now that there's a temple, there's a temple, it's the second temple built by Herod. It pales in comparison to Solomon's, but it's a temple nonetheless. We're going to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and we look forward to it. And so if we're going to travel on foot from Athens to Jerusalem, that's a long trip. You're not going to want to care. You're going to be travel light. So you're not going to carry an oxen with you or some sheep or some pigeons because you can buy them at the temple. It was not forbidden to sell the animals by the temple. And the problem here that's going on is not what they're selling, but where they're selling it. All right? So Jesus comes in and sees this, this debacle and overturns the tables because he has the authority to overturn the tables. In other words, and if you've been walking with Christ for any period of time, you know that in your life, Jesus has the authority to overturn the tables of our lives. Because he will on sometimes, if you read the first part of chapter 2, sometimes he'll fill your wine glass. And other times, he overturns the tables. He's not being Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's the same God using two different ways to get us of doing the same, the same thing. And if we can understand these things, we'll have great coherence, consistency, peace, and joy for our day-to-day lives. God does this throughout the Bible. He overturns our tables and doesn't tell us necessarily why on the outset. Adam and Eve, for example, placed in this beautiful garden, could eat everything in the garden, everything, except this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? He doesn't tell them. We know through our travels through Genesis that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for them to partake of it, meant that they would have filtered good and evil through the world and the devil rather than God himself. God wanted to be the supreme authority in their life, to be obeyed just because of who he was not what they could get out of it. So therefore, you can eat every tree you want, except this one. And so what do they do? Serpent comes along and says, why won't God let you eat out of the fruit tree of the, fruit, uh, the, tree of the good and evil? And they say, we well, don't know. 
Well, if you don't know why, why do you have to obey it? So they disobeyed God. They reached out, saw that it was good to eat, and they fell. And the world's had the same infection ever since. God gave them that command, I want you to obey me because of who I am and who you are. If you only obey me because you know what you can get out of obeying me, you're using me. And we do this. We want something out of God, then we'll obey him. And when we don't get what we want, we walk away. We do this in relationships. Let's say we're all trust fund babies and we're wealthy beyond, you know, you can imagine. We all got this great trust fund that's all tied up on Wall Street. And along comes this wonderful man, this wonderful woman who just falls head over heels in love with us and just can't get enough of us. And so we decide we're going to get married. So we're going to get married and all of a sudden about a week and a half before the wedding stock market crashes and your trust fund is zero so you approach your fiance and you say honey uh, i you know maybe maybe we should postpone this for a little bit to give the time market to recover um i, I but right now i have no money i think i think we need to give it some time to come back what if your fiancé said, well, maybe we should just call this whole thing off? You know, how would you feel? You'd be crushed. You would think and you would say, you didn't love me for me. You loved me. It was a good act. You loved me because of my money. You loved me. Because what you could get from me, you were using me. And if God, being the creator of the universe and our redeemer, says, I'm bringing something in your life, and I want you to accept it just because of who I am, and we respond with, oh, that's, that's fine as long as it meets my goals, <laughs> meets my purposes. I get out of this relationship what I want to get out of it. You're using God. Don't you think he has a greater right than we to be outraged? I mean, we, we act as if God doesn't have feelings. Where do you think feelings comes from? We're made in the image of God. If there's anything the Bible teaches us, it shows us he has feelings. And when we treat God like that, we're using him. But if God comes and says, I'm bringing things in your life because I want you to submit to me because I love you. Because of who I am, I'm your creator, I'm your redeemer, I got this. It may be that the only reason he's doing this is that you wake up to that reality. He's God. You're not. Mary got this in the first half of go This afternoon, go home and read verses 1 through 12. The wedding at Cana. It's awesome. You know, Jesus comes into Cana with his buddies and he goes to a wedding feast. Mary's there, his mom, his earthly mom, and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. This is terrible. Now remember, Jewish feasts were better part of a week long. And so the wedding host had not planned. 
And so this is an incredible social faux pas, which they never would have outlived, ever, ever. They were the ones. And Mary wants to help. And she knows someone who can. And Jesus kind of speaks harshly to her. Remember that story? He, he says, it's not my time. It's not my time. He doesn't answer her question. What does she do? She looks at the servant and says, do whatever he says. And he does. And he transforms the party, doesn't he? No, my friends, if he has the ability to fill your wine glass, he has the right to overturn that wine glass and your table and rearrange your dining room at the same time. God in the person of Jesus Christ has the right to fill my wine glass and overturn my table. That speaks to the authority of Jesus. Secondly, we see in this the purpose of Jesus coming among us. So he's overturning the tables. He's upset. And we see in verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, right, poor pigeon sellers, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I want you to imagine the West Side Market placed inside the worship space. Like I said at the onset, it wasn't forbidden to have these things sold because you had to have your money changed. You had Roman currency if you were coming from a long way. You had to change it into Jewish currency. So then you could buy your oxen if you're wealthy, your lamb if you're middle class, and your pigeons, two turtle doves, if you're poor, for a sacrifice. And they've brought this all into the court of the Gentiles. Wait, Israel's supposed to be a blessing to the nations so that even the Gentiles could come and worship the Lord. And what do they get? The bleeding of sheep, the mooing of, of oxen, the cooing of pigeons, the vendors yelling out, two for one, two for one. Can you imagine? Westside Market at Christmas time before pandemic. Think about that. You know, that's where you go get your brats, right? Don't you? I do, you know. Anyway, so Jesus comes in and says, really? They don't get it. They don't understand. They don't understand that all of this is about what I'm about to do. They, they're not ready for me. They don't know what the sacrifice means. They don't even see the need for a savior. They don't have any idea because they're not praying. They've turned their worship into a house of trade, a marketplace. It's mechanical. It's not even engaged with worship. They're not, they're not slowing down. They're not thinking. Get out of here! And turns the tables over. You got to remember too, the whip of cords. It's not like he's riding, uh, you know, the lower 40 on the Bonanza Ranch with Hoss and little Joe with a leather whip. 
a whip of cords, the cords there, the word there is rushes. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern rushes, I mean, if I hit you as hard as I could, you go, <laughs> this, this whip isn't going to hurt anybody. So why are they leaving? Because they instinctively know this is a man of authority. This is someone who comes bringing truth with grace, but truth. Okay? He turns over these tables. And the real problem is they've squeezed out real worship and real communion with God. Real reflection in the meaning of the substitutionary sacrifice. And when he sees the animals that point to him and they're all missing it, he's justifiably upset because he knows what he's come to do. Because this is the main thing that he's come to do, which is lay down his life and die the death for us that we deserve to live the life that we don't deserve to live. And so, he had great focus towards that purpose. Like Luciano Pavarotti he writes, when I was a boy, my father, a baker, introduced me to the wonders of song. He urged me to work very hard to develop my voice, and he got me lessons with the professional tenor in Modena, Italy, Argio Pola, who took me on as a pupil. Then I enrolled in a teacher's college. And upon graduation, I asked my father, Father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? My father, a baker, said, Luciano, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. Choose one. So he did. It took seven years of frustrating study and work before he even got his first professional appearance. It took seven more years before he appeared before the Metropolitan Opera. And he says, and now I think whether it's laying bricks, writing a book, whatever we choose... We should give ourselves to it. Commitment, that's the key. Choose one chair. Well, if that's true for Luciano Pavarotti, how much more true was it for our Lord Jesus Christ who chose the chair of the cross for each and every one of us? That's his purpose. And what he's saying is, realize this. Think about the cross. When you're wondering how much God doesn't love you, you can gaze on that cross and it will lift you up. And when you're filled with your own pride, it will bring you back down. And if you remember this, and this is the love of God in Christ for you, you'll be prepared for whatever life throws at you. Jesus' purpose was to come and to die and get us to see the value and the beauty and the glory of that death. It doesn't end there. Let's look at the glory. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, by what authority are you doing this? Who are you? You don't own the place. This is the Annas marketplace. Did you know that? Scholars we're calling this the marketplace of Annas. Annas was the high priest. That's like we had a marketplace right outside in the narthex, and it's Gene's marketplace. 
you get to buy you know, communion wafers and you bring your own. It's that kind of mentality. But what authority do you do this? So, so Jesus responds. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Kind of feels out of the way. He's not really answering their question, is he? So they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. So writing this 40 years later, John adds some commentary for the reader. In other words, me and you, so we can understand it. And he writes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. <laughs> that Jesus was going to die, but he wouldn't stay dead. He would raise from the dead three days later. Can you imagine the light bulbs that went off as they remembered this event? And so these Jews are saying, how can you act as if you own the place? Jesus says, own the place? I am the place. I'm the temple. I'm God among you. I'm the sanctuary where God is holy. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they walked with God in the cool of the day. They were in the glory of God, surrounded by him, and that's what we should have been too. But if we were them, we would have done the same thing. Walking together with God in the cool of the day, instead of loving God, they decided to use God instead and to walk with God as long as it suited their purposes. So God expelled them from the sanctuary and barred them from ever entering. For them to go back into a world and Satan defined good and evil would have killed them. And God wasn't going to let that happen. But Jesus came and as he died upon the cross, the glory of God comes. He shows up and says, I am he. I am the ultimate sacrifice. I'm the ultimate temple. I died for you. And now the way is open. In spite of the fact that he expelled us, he found a way to bring us back. So you know what this means? It means that being a Christian is now not just a signing of a code of conduct. Because the same raw presence of God in the Shekinah glory that came down upon Mount Sinai, anything it touched died. Anything that the Shekinah glory touched died. But now the explosive, life-giving force that floods into us is that we are partakers of the glory of Christ as we trust in him alone for our salvation. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> See, if you're a Christian, that's the reason you're here. You're here for the wine. You're here to receive of the feast. It's not just rules. It's not just duty. You're here for the relationship. And that's what Jesus is saying. Get this clutter out of here. We're here to hear the word. To slow our lives down. We're caught up in all the rules and we miss the relationship. 
and we're going through the motions and we're missing the relationship. There should be glory in your life. You should experience my presence. All of this is available to you and you're missing it. See what he's doing? So let's apply this. Number one, recognize that Jesus is saying it is possible for us to be so busy with the religiosity of your life, in a sense, turning your life into a trading post, a marketplace, and miss the most important thing, which is a walk with Jesus Christ in his word, in prayer, in service to your family and to your neighbors. And I'm going to press you here, brothers and sisters. We don't do just another program. We do things which make disciples who make disciple makers. So we've gone through about our fifth reboot at Christ Church. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Uh, From 2007 to 2011, things were going great. Boom, lost the building. Reset. Went to the high school for six months. Boom, moved to the middle school. Reset. We're in the middle school. Then we found out who was really with us after four years. Then we find Lord opens up this opportunity. So we move. Reset. And now we've had a COVID pandemic where our attendance has gone down 70%. Reset. There's nothing new for God's people. Nothing new here at all. The Lord, I believe, is calling us to simplify our life, clear out the clutter of the culture, come before the Lord, be with the Lord, grow in the Lord. So we're simplifying the church. Sundays and one little church. We're kind of bringing them all together, okay, quite frankly. As we walk through this fall discovering the real Jesus, you have a couple of different opportunities, and you only need to come to one (laughs) because you don't need to repeat the same thing you just studied, right? And so on Wednesday mornings, we have what used to be our Wednesday service is now a Wednesday little church, which is going to walk through the book. If you're available on Wednesday mornings, come. We've got 10 saints who have been doing this since 1901, all right? And, and so therefore, come, join us. They don't want to change it, by the way. But they, if they know me well enough to know, well, we can't stop him, so we're just going to have to roll with it, and I'm too old to stop him anyway. Okay, we're going to do this. And they're, they're awesome people. They love Jesus. But we're going to study the Bible, and after we just say and discuss, we're going to take communion together. That's Wednesday morning, 1030, if you're available. If not, join me on Wednesday night. we still got some room in here for this, as well as if it's just too much. It's at 730, not 7 a.m., 7.30 p.m. Live stream. You'll find it on, go to our website first. If you don't find it on our website, then go to YouTube. If you don't find it on YouTube, find it on Facebook. You know, this, this technology is killing me. You know, we set it up and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that's why we got three. Figure one out of three will work. All right? And just buy the book, join us with the study, and text in a question. All right? And sometime this fall, we're going to divide up our low churches and we'll serve our community somehow. I don't know what yet. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. We don't know. But asking ourselves, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us the courage to join you in that work. There'll be a need that comes up if we pray.
okay? That's the first thing. And for those of you who really are just plain Christian, kind of just checking it out, the real difference between the wedding and the temple is that the wedding, Jesus is only a house guest. And at the temple, he's the host. Which means you can really tell if you're following Christ when he has the right in your life to subtract things. He has the right to get rid of that fourth travel soccer team your kid's on. How about just one? How about he's not very good at it anyway and just stop doing soccer? Let the kid work in his gifts. We think as parents, we got to do all these things. No. Well-balanced, sure. Good things, sure. But that's the essence of idolatry, taking good things and making them ultimate things, and then we think we're good parents. No. In 40 years from now, it's nothing more than a fond memory, and they probably will not look at it in the fondness that you do. Declutter. He has the right to subtract things, to cast things out. Is he doing that? Uh, some of you might be thinking, well, I can buy this in the Bible, but I can't buy this. Uh, you know, I, it, we're, we're, it's 2020. Truly, we don't believe that anymore, right? Whatever it might be. It's too primitive. In other words, Jesus can't ever contradict you so that you immediately filter out anything in your life that's difficult, life-changing, you just rule it out. Well, if that's your stance, you don't worship God, you worship your own image in errand boy form. Because that's what God is to you. A gopher. But if you invite him into your life and you say, all right, I get it, take it over. Live here. Don't just be a house guest. Be the host. Well, he has the right to pour the wine and change the place settings radically. In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy and Edmund are in this great adventure when they come across this Beautiful, large, grassy expanse. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Beautiful. The greenest grass you've ever seen. And they're walking across this beautiful, sunny in 75. And at the end of the horizon is a little white spot. They go, let's go check this out. That's kind of weird. You don't see that often. So they're walking towards it. And as they walk towards it, they see a lamb cooking breakfast. Standing up on his hind legs. It's Narnia. Just get over it. It's just it's what we do, all right? So the lamb's cooking breakfast. And they come. and he, Come, come, join me. And they eat the most beautiful fish breakfast. I don't know where he got the fish in the middle of a field, but he got fish. A beautiful fish breakfast. They, they said it was, it was absolutely the best they'd ever had. 
And they start getting this wonderful conversation. And they say, we're trying to get back to Narnia. And he says, oh, I know the way to Narnia. And Lewis describes it like this. As he began to explain, a marvelous thing happens. His snowy white flushed into a tawny gold. And his size changed. And he was Aslan the lion himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. Here's the great truth. The lamb is the lion. In biblical terms, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. Qualities that we consider lamb-like, gentleness and meekness, are indeed of Jesus Christ. But so are the regalness and the ferocity of the lion. In Revelation 6.16, it speaks of the wrath of the lamb. Let Jesus be who he is, brothers and sisters. Don't push him into the Cuisinart food processor of our culture. Do you want the real God or do you want a projection of yourself? Let him be who he is. He's the Lord of the wine and the Lord of the whips. He overturns your tables and he fills your wine glass all for the same reason. Because he loves you with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful once again for this day and grateful that we can come together as your people at this 11.15 hour and just see you for who you are in a well-familiar text which you've spoken new truths into each and every one of our lives. No matter where we are in our journey, we pray that this word would go deep into our lives. That those of us who have walked with Jesus for a while would see you evermore as that lion who's a lamb who was slain for us. And you fill our wine glass and yet you overturn our tables. And for those who are dabbling in Christianity or just trying to do it their way, Lord, that they would see you for who you are. You're God. We're not. And that we are loved because of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to get rid of our designer gods. And may we, Lord, receive you for who you are because of your everlasting love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.